Well, it's Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 10, and if you like these things, uh, there's uh, a, uh, an outline of the sermon on the back of the service order, if you just want to see where I'm going. Indeed, if you want to take notes as well, there are a few spaces to do that. Uh, a few years ago, when we were living in London, I was speaking to someone who wanted to know more about Jesus Christ. Uh, I'd never met this particular man before, and after we chatted a while, he said these words to me. There are so many people out there on the streets of London offering salvation, it's very confusing. And he was right. There were, there are, and not just out on the streets of London, there are many strange alternatives out there. Many people knocking on our front doors, as it were, selling their religious wares. It makes the question of who is right very confusing, doesn't it? We live in a diverse and multicultural society and have close contact with people from every different religion and none. Who's right? A church warden of a previous church I was involved in explained the difficulty of standing up for Jesus in his office. He put it like this. I work with a Jehovah's Witness, a Muslim and three regular pagans, he said. See, we live and work in such a diverse culture. And while that brings a glorious richness to our lives and in many ways should be celebrated, when it comes to the question of salvation and the way to God, generally it only adds confusion. Why is Jesus the right way or the only way? Add to the mix that we now live in a, a global village with world travel more accessible than ever before and the information superhighway bringing us up-to-date information on almost absolutely anything then the bare fact is that we have more access to other religions than we ever did. And so the question of who is right becomes even more confusing. I was reflecting on that this week and thinking back 20 years when I first started going on missions, I, I was barely ever asked the question about other religions 20 years ago. Now it is one of the top questions in evangelistic conversations that I have. So I think of a mission uh, uh, that I was on a couple of years ago and a, a supper party that I spoke at and as we uh, invited questions uh, after this supper party uh, somebody said this. They said, I know Jews and Muslims and they're nice people. What's so special about Jesus that we have to follow him? See, when it comes to the issues of spirituality we have huge choices laid before us. How do we know that Jesus is the promised Messiah? Now that is the question at the beginning of Matthew chapter 11. And as I put in my first point on the handout, it's a crucial question. Look at Matthew 11 verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison that Christ was, what, what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? See, there's the question, a crucial question. Jesus, are you the one? Are you the promised Messiah? It is a crucial question because there is so much at stake hanging on the question. Now, there's no need to turn it up, but uh, a few chapters later, in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24, listen to these words of Jesus, of what he says it means to follow him. Matthew 16, verse 24. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Take up your cross. Be ready to die for me, says Jesus. He demands total allegiance. 
Now, in the early years of the 20th century, the explorer Ernest Shackleton put an advertisement in various London newspapers to try and get men to come with him on his polar expeditions. The adverts ran like this. Men wanted for a hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months in complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful. Needless to say, there weren't many applicants. And yet here, here is Christ's appeal almost identical. Come and die. Take up your cross. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's a big call to follow Jesus, isn't it? And it's a call that no one in their right mind is going to live out unless they are convinced that Jesus is the one. That's why this is such a crucial question. Even here in Britain, as things stand, it's unlikely that we'll actually be killed for our faith but we will find ourselves marginalised and misunderstood. And when we think of giving, as we have been doing this morning, no one's going to sacrificially part with their uh, hard-earned cash unless they're sure that Jesus is the real thing. So Jesus demands total commitment. And that, of course, is the setting for this question. You see verse 2 of Matthew 11, John the Baptist was in prison. Why was he in prison? Because he was uh, preaching the good news of Jesus. And he never got out of prison. Now Mark tells us in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, that he uh, had his head chopped off because of the things he was saying. Jesus commands total commitment. So this is a crucial question. Jesus, are you the one? Because if you're not, I'm wasting my life. But it's also an astonishing question. Look who's asking this question. Well, we've already seen it. Verse 2, it's John the Baptist. And that is what makes it such an amazing question. This is a surprise because do you remember when John the Baptist burst onto the scene, there was no doubt in his mind who Jesus was. John the Baptist, when he preached uh, as he first uh, started his public ministry, was 100% certain Jesus is the one. Now he's not so sure. But keep your finger in Matthew chapter 11 and come back with me to chapter 3. Uh, chapter 3, verses 11 to 14, page 967. As you come back, you'll see that uh, John the Baptist uh, was sure that Jesus was the one. And you'll also see what he expected Jesus to do and to be as the one. Matthew chapter 3, uh, verse 11, towards the end of all that that John the Baptist said I baptise with water for repentance but after me will come one who is more powerful than I whose sandals I am not fit to carry he will baptise with the Holy Spirit and with fire his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire look what he goes on to say when he then meets Jesus Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John, but John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and do you come to me? See, it seems as we read those words, John the Baptist was convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, the one to come. Now don't turn back to it, but uh, back in chapter 11, we've seen John is baffled. Before we go back there, Please take note of the words of John the Baptist in verse 12. 
Speaking of the Christ to come, John the Baptist said, chapter 3, verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You see, this is crucial to understand why John is so confused. John believed that the Messiah, the one to come, would come in judgment to burn up the chaff like a spiritual dustman taking away all the rubbish in this world. So you see, as we turn back to chapter 11, we see that John is asking if Jesus is the Messiah. Because Jesus doesn't seem to be acting in the way that John expects the Messiah to act. Jesus doesn't judge the wicked. Now, this is a very contemporary question and a very contemporary issue, isn't it? I would be a very rich man if I had a pound for every time someone said to me, if Jesus is God, why doesn't he stop all the wars in the world, feed all the hungry, sort out all the injustice? These are very real questions on the lips of Christians as well as unbelievers. Why doesn't Jesus do something? Isn't he the one? And if we feel it, and I know we do, we can be sure that Christians around the world feel it even more acutely in parts of the Muslim world where Christian men and women are persecuted for their faith, where to go to church is outlawed, where Christians are imprisoned, where congregations are torched and even blown up. Jesus, if you're the one, why do you let that happen? You see why John the Baptist is perplexed. Jesus knows the messianic promises of the Old Testament. He knows that when the Christ comes, he's going to comfort his people by overthrowing their enemies. But John is in prison. And as he sat in prison, he might have said, the enemies of Judah are as entrenched and as powerful as they've ever been. Jesus is here, but there's no change. When will he overthrow the occupying forces? When will he make mincemeat of Pharisaic hypocrisy? When will he burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire? When will he establish his kingdom of heaven? And when will he release the prisoners? This, of course, is one reason why many Jewish people don't acknowledge Jesus as the Christ. They look around at the state of the world, they remember the promises of the Old Testament about the Messiah, and they conclude Jesus can't be the Christ. Do you see John's problem? We share it, don't we? We know what you've promised to do when you come, but you're not doing it, Jesus. Are you the one? See, it's a crucial question because we don't, if we don't get it right, there's no way we'll be wholeheartedly following Jesus. And it is an astonishing question because John the Baptist appeared to be sold out on who Jesus was, but now he's got the question. It's very real for us, isn't it? Well, third, Jesus gives us a powerful answer. Look what he says in Matthew 11, verse 4. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is preached to the poor. Well, that is a powerful answer. Jesus, are you the one who was to come? Jesus, are you the one the Old Testament points to? Jesus says, well, look at what I'm doing. What am I doing? The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, good news is preached to the poor. Now, why is that such a powerful answer? It's such a powerful answer because it's exactly what the Old Testament says the Messiah will do when he comes. 
Again, keep your finger in Matthew 11. Come with me to Isaiah 35, the first of the two readings that uh, Pam read for us. It's on page 719 uh, in the Church Bibles, page 719. Isaiah chapter 35. Now this part of the Bible was written 700 years before Jesus arrived. 700 years before Jesus came, This is going to tell us what will happen uh, when God comes to this earth. Look at Isaiah chapter 35 and verse 4. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, don't fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He'll come to save you. And then look at verse 5. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. That's what Jesus did. And that's what Jesus said that the, to John's disciples that he should go back and tell John about. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. And who does Isaiah say will do these things? Look at verse 4 again. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. This is what God will do when he comes on earth. Now stay in Isaiah 35 for a moment, but do you see the point? Jesus' answer in Matthew chapter 11 is a powerful answer. Look what I'm doing, says Jesus, and ask yourself, who can do that? Who else can open the eyes of the blind and make the deaf hear? Who else can make lame people walk and give speech to the mute? I am God, he says. Now, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus here today, thank you so much for coming. It's wonderful you've come to be among us. We hope you're in a safe place where you're going to have a chance to ask ask any questions that you have. Uh, And one of your questions might be, how do I know that Jesus is who he says he is? Well, do you see what this says? Look at the evidence before you. Jesus actually says, faced with the evidence of what I did when I was on earth, who do you think I am? Who can do these things? Raising the dead, unblocking blind eyes and deaf ears, making the lame walk, helping mute to speak. Who can do that? And you don't have to work out the answer either because the Bible tells us the answer. Here it is, Isaiah chapter 35 verse 4. Who can do that? God. Let me speak to the Christians, those of you who are committed Christians, and say when faced with questions of the identity of Jesus... Perhaps when the Jehovah Witnesses come knocking on your door, show them Matthew chapter 11 and Isaiah 35 and help them to be released from the legalism of their religion. Help them to see that Jesus is God because Jehovah Witnesses don't believe that. See, it's a powerful answer because as Jesus made the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk and the mute talk, he was doing what Isaiah says God will do when he comes. But as we look more carefully at Isaiah 35, we might want to say it's only a partial answer, the fourth point on my handout. Look again as Isaiah 35 verse 4. You see, here's John's problem again. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. See the problem? Where's the vengeance? Where's the divine retribution in Jesus' ministry? Why is it today we've seen Jesus come that he doesn't bash all the evil people? Why? 
See, that's what John announced in the desert. With his winnowing fork in his hand, he will clear the threshing floor, burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Do you see the conundrum? Now turn over a few pages to Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1, page 748. And you'll see it even more acutely for John, why John the Baptist was particularly struggling with this issue. Page 748. Again, 700 years before Christ arrived, this is what we are to expect. Isaiah 61 verse 1. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Now, Jesus picks up these very words in in, in Luke chapter 4. He quotes these very words as about him. Isaiah 61 verse 1. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. See, he did that. But then read on. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. The Messiah is supposed to do that, but John is banged up in prison. Now as we turn back to Matthew chapter 11, page 976, do you see why John John the Baptist asked the question? Yes, Jesus has done many things you'd expect the Messiah to do, but he hasn't come with vengeance and divine retribution as Isaiah 35 said. He hasn't wiped out Judah's enemies. He hasn't released John the Baptist from prison. And so John is asking, Matthew 11 verse 3, if you are the one, and I believe you are, why, Jesus, don't you do what you've come to do? And so on the one hand, his answer is a very powerful answer. Look what I do do. And on the other hand, it's only a partial answer. And Jesus knows that for John and others listening in, and maybe for us today, this will be a very disappointing answer. And so look what he says in verse 6. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. It must be one of the, the strangest of Jesus' Beatitudes. The RSV translates it this. Blessed is he who takes no offence at me. Jesus knows, you see, that some people will be disappointed. Worse, that some will be offended. Worse, that someone will actually walk away from him. Jesus knows that some will say, Jesus doesn't really deliver, does he? There's an organisation called the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students, IFES, I-F-E-S. Many of you will know of that uh, organisation. They work amongst students all over the world. The IFES conference some years ago international conference some years ago was held in Colombia while it was being held there a group of freedom fighters hijacked and took captive a bus full of people on the bus were a number of IFES workers who'd gone out there for the conference and while they were being held captive they got together on the bus to read their bible and pray amazingly some of those holding them captive began to join them in reading the bible and praying with them And as they did, as they melted a little bit in those uh, long hours, some of those freedom fighters said this, we used to be evangelical Christians, but we wanted to see liberation for our country and Jesus wasn't answering our prayers, so we became freedom fighters. Now that's extreme, but that's exactly the issue here, isn't it? Jesus knows that some people will be disappointed by what he does not do. So he said, Matthew chapter 11, verse 6, Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. 
See, he knows that people are tempted to fall away because he doesn't seem to do what they want him to do. Indeed, what even the Old Testament said he would do. Remember the parable of the sower where Jesus talks about the, uh, the, the farmer who went out to sow seed and as he sowed the seed, it fell on different parts, different types of soil. Do you remember that? There's no need to turn it up, but Jesus tells that parable just in two chapters' time, in chapter 13. And he talks about people falling away. Exactly this um, expression that we see in Matthew 11, verse 6. Let me read what he said. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. Now you and I, if we've been Christians for a while, have seen that happen. We've seen people receive the gospel with great joy. They're thrilled to be Christians. No sooner have they heard about Jesus than they're inviting their friends along to hear about him as well. And for a while they seem to be going great guns, sold out for Jesus. But when trouble or persecution comes their way, when hardships don't go away, they start to doubt Jesus. Bad health hits. Financial issues grab. Job security goes. Rejection from others come. And then people drift away. I thought he was God. I thought he loved me. Why is this happening to me when I'm trying to follow him? Matthew 11 verse 6 Blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. See that's John the Baptist's situation isn't it? Why am I in prison? Tragedies come and we pray and God doesn't seem to answer. John the Baptist never got out. Had his head chopped off. Why didn't Jesus release the captive? Why didn't he bring judgment on the evildoers? Verse 6, Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Happy is the person who comes to me and listens to me and follows me and takes no offence when they don't understand why I don't do all that they think that I should do. Blessed is the person who continues to follow me even though I don't deliver them all from all the hardships of life. Happy is the person who understands that 2,000 years ago Jesus didn't come in judgment. You see, the conundrum is solved when we understand that many of the promises of the Old Testament will only be fulfilled by Jesus when he returns again in glory to wrap up history as we know it. Many of the promises that we've been reading in Isaiah were not just about Jesus' first coming, but about his second coming. And so as we close, one last cross-reference. Come with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, where I think the conundrum is finally solved even though it's a big issue. Page 1224. Page 1224 in the Bibles. 2 Peter chapter 3. Page 1224. See, here it is. The Old Testament promises that Jesus is going to come again. That he's going to come in judgment. Why did he not do that the first time? Peter tells us he's going to do it the second time when he returns. He will come in judgment with vengeance, with divine retribution, proclaiming freedom for prisoners and releasing them from darkness. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. But you see, it's been a long time 
And so some people will doubt that he will ever put the world to rights. That's verse 3 of 2 Peter 3. See, first of all, says Peter, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. There's no change. It's 2,000 years now since Jesus has come to this earth. 2,000 years since he said he was going to return. He still hasn't come. He's not coming. What does Jesus say? What does uh, uh, Peter say? Verse 5. Well, those people who say that deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of the water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Do you see what he's saying? Just because Jesus hasn't judged the world yet, and just because wickedness continues to reign in this world, don't think that he won't. God has judged the world before and he'll do it again, he says. Why the delay? Why 2,000 years? It's because God is so kind. Look at verse 8. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. How kind. See, John the Baptist was right. The Old Testament promised that the Messiah would come to judge the world. But when he does, there will be no second chance. And so our gracious, kind and patient and loving God holds off his hand of judgment to give men and women time to repent. That's what Peter's saying here. He's waiting for more and more people to turn from wickedness, from their rebellion, from their sin, to turn to him, how kind of God, to be waiting. But in the meantime, that means we live in a messy world. A messy world where issues are not sorted, where people get away with murder, where injustice reigns and evil people prosper, where Christian people are put in prison even though they don't deserve it, where Christians are even murdered. We live in a messy world. What are we going to do with the mess? If we understand this properly, if we understand what Peter is saying properly, rather than the mess and the sadness of the world turn us away from the Lord, it should spur us on to remember that the Lord is being patient, waiting for more people to come to him. It should spur us on then to tell our friends and family and neighbours and colleagues who don't know the Lord Jesus, to tell them they don't have forever, to tell them that Jesus will return to judge one day. And that he's waiting for them because he loves them to come back to him. You see, blessed is the one who doesn't fall away on account of me. If we understand these things properly, it will be hard as we go through a messy world, but we won't say, oh, Jesus doesn't deliver. We'll say, ah, that's why he hasn't done it yet. Because he's kind. And so my job is to tell people about him. That should spur us on, you see rather than make us fall away. And it spurs us on because, in answer to our question, he is the one, the Messiah, the Christ. Let's pray.